Now let's open our Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter number 16 this morning. Numbers chapter number 16. Let me say from my heart how much I appreciate all those that came out yesterday, labored and all the hard work that has gone into uh, our vacation Bible school. Please pray with us this week that God would send us young people. We, uh, we've promoted it and we've put it out there and I hope you have been inviting people. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, we can, we can plant, we can water, we can till, but God gives the increase. So you pray with us uh, to the Lord of the harvest that He would he has sent laborers into the field. We praise the Lord for that, but pray that He would give a good harvest this week that we might see Christ magnified. Numbers chapter number 16. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 41. Numbers chapter 16, verse number 41. Now we're picking up in the middle of a passage. I'll give you a little bit of context after we read and pray. Verse number 41 says, But on the morrow all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. And it came to pass, when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron, that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer, and put fire therein from off the altar, and put on incense, and go quickly unto the congregation, and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord, the plague is begun. And Aaron took, as Moses commanded, and ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague was begun among the people. And he put on incense, and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living. And the plague was stayed. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700 beside them that died about the matter of Korah. And Aaron returned unto Moses under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the plague was stayed. Let's pray together. Father, what a blessing. Let me say publicly it is to be in your house today. Lord, I'm thankful that we were able to assemble together today in freedom and to worship in your house once again. Let us never take for granted that great liberty. I pray that you would speak to each and every heart. Lord, you've given me a message. Lord, I believe with all my heart that it has come from you. But Lord, it's all to no avail if the Spirit of God does not do a work in our hearts and minds. and We have to let Him do that work. So I pray that you'd help us to have our hearts yielded today. Lord, may we see the importance of what we've come to do. This is not formality. This is not routine or ritual. We've come to hear from heaven today. And let us adjust our perspective and our heart upon that most holy of purposes. And let us treat it, Lord, with the reverence that it deserves. Lord, I'm thankful for this day. I'm thankful for the love and grace that you've showed us through Calvary. I'm thankful that your Son stood and stands between the dead and the living. And that in Him we have hope. Lord, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we said, we begin this passage this morning in the middle of a story. If you were to begin at the... Uh, beginning at the first verse of Numbers chapter number 16, you would read the story of a man by the name of Korah. Korah had two companions, cohorts, as it were, by the name of Dathan and Abiram. These men were Levites, meaning they were descendants of Levi, the son of Jacob. And they were not priests. Not every Levite was a priest. Every Levite had a responsibility of laboring as regarded the tabernacle 
And they had jobs to do. There had to be maintenance that was done and there had to be uh, things that had to be completed. And uh, they all worked in the, in the tabernacle ministry and work, but they were not all priests. Only the sons of Aaron were given the priesthood. One day, Korah and his friends, Dathan and Abiram, decide to themselves that uh, Moses and Aaron have took too much liberty and too much authority upon themselves. They became jealous over the priesthood and they decided that there was no reason that Moses and Aaron should be the priests, but rather that they themselves would be the priests. So they begin to murmur against and complain against Moses and Aaron. And uh, as a result of this, God determines that He's going to destroy all of the children of Israel. When this happens, Moses and Aaron fall on their faces and beg God to have mercy. They, uh, they implore the Lord and essentially say unto Him that it's not fair that He would destroy the entire congregation because of the guilt of, of these few men. So God in His mercy spares them, but He does decide that He's going to settle this matter of who is in charge of the priesthood once and for all. And so uh, they decide that they're going to take censers. Now, that was the utensil they'd use to burn incense, and it was always sort of symbolic of the priesthood. That these men would all take censers in their hand, and that they would put fire in them and let God decide in that action who exactly was chosen to be the priest. Well, of course, no surprise that Aaron and his sons were chosen for the priesthood. God hadn't changed his mind. Uh, who he had chosen before was still who he had chosen then. And uh, so as a punishment to Korah and Dathan and Abiram, uh, God opens the earth up and swallows up them and their tent, their household, their family, and kills all of those men. And then there were 250 men that had sort of stood with Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And uh, God sent fire from heaven to destroy and to consume those men. Now you might say, well, preacher, that's harsh. It would have been harsher, number one, for God to have killed all the people of Israel. They were all complicit in that action. But number two, it would have been especially cruel if he had turned the priesthood over to these wicked men and saw the communion with God disrupted and derailed in the land of Israel. And so we need to be careful lest we foolishly charge God as being unkind or cruel in some way, I'd remind you that God is not always what we call fair, but He is always just. He is always merciful. Now, you would think, I don't know about you, but I know growing up, the whippings I got growing up, they had a shelf life, all right? I could get a whipping depending on how bad it was, depending on how many days I was good for. Uh, If it was just a little whipping, I might be good for a few hours, if that, you know? And, uh, but then, you know, if daddy give us a whipping and, and give us one that we knew about, then, uh, you know, we might be good for a few days. I've had a few of them I'm still behaving good because of. You would think that the children of Israel, in light of what God had just done, had just done, you'd think they would have woke up the next day ready to praise God and serve the Lord and do anything that God would have asked them to do, but that's not what happened. Instead, they get up the very next day and they begin to do what Korah did. They begin to murmur against Moses and Aaron. God, once again, determines He's going to kill all the people of Israel, start afresh and anew with Moses and his family. Moses intercedes on their behalf and asks God to spare them. But God sends a plague amongst the children of Israel to destroy them. Now, I don't know what kind of plague that it was, but I know it seemed to be so instantaneous 
that if Aaron could not get to them in time with that offering, they'd die immediately, presently, right there. The end of the passage tells us there were 14,700 people that died on that day for the simple fact that Aaron could not get to them. When Moses sees that the plague is spreading through the camp, he turns to his brother Aaron, who is the high priest, and says, Aaron, there is only one hope. The wrath of God has been riled. The plague of God has been sent forth. These people are not being assessed. They are being condemned. They are not being determined. They are dying. We must do something to save the people. And Aaron is commanded by Moses to go and take his censer, fill it with fire from off the altar and put incense on, and to run and to head off the plague in the midst of the children of Israel and to try to save some of them from the sin and the consequences of their sin. And an astounding phrase is used in the latter part of this chapter. I want you to notice it with me. Verse 48, talking about Moses, the high priest, the brother of Aaron, says of this man that he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this passage this morning, I cannot help but think of another high priest that one day left the glories of heaven to come and make sacrifice for you and for me that stands, that stood on that day, suspended between heaven and earth, between the living and the dead, but also even today stands and is the great differentiating factor between who is living and who is dead in this life. I want you to notice a few things. Let me just put it real simple. I want to tell you a few things about this passage that remind me of sinners and remind me of the Savior and remind me of salvation. And I want us to then think about what it means for our life, both as a creature of God, both as someone that will stand before God one day, but then also as somebody, if you've been saved by the grace of God, hey, listen, you've got that same incense and there's still a plague moving through the world. And our high priest is now seated on the right hand of God the Father, but he has tasked us as being as being priests to stand between the living and the dead. So let's notice a few things this morning briefly, and then we'll close. First off, I want you to notice, and let me say a word, about the transgressors in this passage. Notice verse 41 with me. The Bible says this, But on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And this is what they said, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. Now, it's easy when you read this passage, especially if you read it removed, sort of dissected away from the earlier portion of the chapter, it's easy to miss the importance. It's easy to miss the graphic, the wicked nature of what they are doing. But they are essentially casting their lot with Korah. They are standing on the opposite side of Moses, who was the representative of God, of Aaron, who was the representative to God. They are lining themselves up against God's economy of worship and of righteousness and of administration. And they are saying, this is where we stand and we're willing to die in this place. I don't know about you, but it sort of reminds me of the way a lost sinner is. You know, we're all born lost. A man has never been born saved in his life. The only man that ever started off this life right with God through and through was not born, he was formed. Amen? Nobody has ever been born right with God. And when I look at these men and the choices they made, it reminds me of a lost sinner and the condition that they are born into and find themselves in. Let me give you a few examples. I noticed, number one, this morning, that they are sinners by association. 
They said an amazing thing. God had just struck dead. Moses didn't make the earth open up. Moses didn't bring fire down from heaven. Nobody but God could have exacted the punishment on Korah and Dathan and Abiram and their followers. And yet they look at Moses and Aaron and say this, Ye have killed the people of Jehovah. You have killed the people of the Lord. Isn't it interesting that they looked at the most wicked men in the camp and called Korah and his followers the people of the Lord. Boy, that reminds me of the mixed up way that this world is today. Calling evil good and good evil and attributing to the worst, uh, wicked, lascivious excesses of iniquity in our society some semblance of righteousness, some semblance of morality. You see, the reality is this. They looked at Korah and they said, that's my crowd. God looked at him and said, if that's your crowd, then you will die with that crowd. You see, what they said was wrong-headed. But what they were trying to communicate, they were being honest about. They called Korah the people of the Lord. But what they were really saying is, we're the people of the Lord and that's our crowd. (laughs) Isn't it funny how humanity looks at things? They wanted to redefine who God was and what God expected relative to where they were standing. They said, God killed those men and those men are our men. They are our people. That's our crowd. So it must not not have been God that killed him. It must have been Moses and Aaron that killed him. Isn't it amazing the mental gymnastics that a lost person will go through to justify their lost condition? They were sinners by association. They chose. They said these are the people of the Lord and they were not saying that they themselves were not the people of the Lord. The implication here is Korah and Dathan and Byram were people of the Lord and were people of the Lord and you, Moses and Aaron, are not the people of the Lord. They were saying that's our crowd. Boy, you know, every lost individual in this world, before they are ever sinners by their actions, they are sinners by association. You know that we are all connected to the first man that ever chose to sin. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 makes it abundantly clear. says this, Wherefore, as by one man... You ladies need to holler amen there. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Here's what God's saying. God's saying a sin nature, not not sin propensities, uh, not not sin choices, but He's saying a sin nature is hereditary. And He's saying Adam chose to sin. And because Adam sinned, and you and I, all of us, we are the descendants of both Adam and Eve, and because of that, that sin nature has been passed down through the generations to every single one of us. So death passed upon all men. You want to know if all men are sinners? Ask this question. Do all men die? Death, the wages of of sin is death. And the fact that we die is an indication that we, by our very nature, are sinners. Now that's not to say that if a person dies, it is a direct result of some sin that they have committed. But it is to say it's a product of our lost condition. It says this in verse 13 of Romans chapter 5, For until the law, sin was in the world. Now that's obvious because death was in the world. So even though there were certain things God had not pointed out and said this is sin, that didn't mean they were not wrong. It didn't mean that they did not breed and bring about death in people's lives. It says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless... Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Now, why did he say to Moses? Well, because on Mount Sinai, God laid out exactly what was right and what was wrong, and He he disclosed the nature of sin and of righteousness. But uh, Paul says here, listen, it, it wasn't until Sinai that people started to die. They were sinners before Sinai. They were sinners not because they broke the law. They were sinners because they were descendants of Adam, and it was in their nature to do what was wrong and unrighteous. You learned this when you raised kids, and I've learned it as I've raised mine, that you don't 
have to teach them to say no. You don't have to teach them to disobey. You don't have to teach them to be rebellious. Uh, They're good at it from the get-go. That is sin nature. It says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. But now listen to this. Even over them that had not sinned after the similitude, meaning after the manner or in the same way of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. I don't know about you, but I've never eaten a forbidden fruit. I've eaten some desserts I probably had no business eating. But I have never eaten a forbidden fruit. I would not know where you would find a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and even if I could find it, I can say honestly before the God of heaven, I've never partook in the fruit of it. You see, it doesn't matter. I'm a sinner by association. My sin, I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I am a sinner. That is my nature. And it is my nature because I have, I have inherited that nature all through the long ages through that first man that chose to sin, Adam. And the very fact that I am a son of Adam is enough to condemn me to an eternity in hell. I'm guilty by association. So I see they were sinners by association. But not only that, I I notice in this passage, they were sinners by participation. Now, here's the funny thing. When you talk to people about original sin, and I mean that in the theological context. I'm not talking about social sin. I'm talking about original sin. Social sins of America or any of her uh, companions or confederates are not the original sin. Uh, If they are sin, they are a product of the original sin. The original sin was Adam's disobedience in the garden. I'm just trying to straighten out what CNN has told you. What original sin actually is. What original sin actually is, is Adam's sin in the garden that produced in us a sin nature. That's not to say America doesn't have her share of sins. I'm sure she does, as all nations do. But all that is a product of our sin nature, not of our social ills, whatever they may be. And it's funny, when you talk about original sin and a sin nature, people almost want to dispute it and debate it as though everything's on the line concerning it. As though the only sin they have is original sin. Can I remind you of something, my friend? You and I, we both have original sin. It is our nature. We are sinners by nature. But even were we not sinners by nature, can I make confession to you that I blew it a long time ago? I am not only a sinner by association. I'm not only a sinner because I am a son of Adam and it is in my blood and it is in my nature to be a sinner. But I am also, as an extension of that, a sinner by participation. And they were as well. You know, it's funny. They were committing the very sin that Korah and his followers had committed. It could be summarized in this way. Murmuring and mutiny. They were complaining against the the men that God had appointed and and anointed in that place to lead and to guide, and they were seeking to overthrow the authority of God in their lives. Now, if there's not anything, I I can't think of anything better that characterizes the, the very basic nature of what sin is in the human condition. You know what sin is? It is at its very nature ungratefulness. We're not grateful for the God that created us and gave us life and and gave us opportunity. I mean, listen, if God never did a thing for us beyond the day of our birth, we should still be indebted to Him for the rest of our life. And the fact that we would sin against Him is ingratitude of the highest degree. Not only is it ingratitude, but it's also mutinous. It's treacherous sin. What is sin? Sin is saying, I know better than God, and God's not going to tell me what to do, and I'm going to do what I want to do and not what He tells me to do. All sins in the human experience, I think, maybe they could not be reduced to these things, but they certainly could be put in those two categories. 
And they certainly we would find those characteristics that all sin at its core is murmuring against the God that created us and mutiny against the God that governs us. And that's what they were involved in. They turned around. Man, I, again, I, I would think after what they saw the day before, man, they'd be walking straight at least for a little while. But the very next day, they get up and do the exact same thing. Now, that's no surprise because that's what we are. We're sinners. That's what we are. We're sinners. All we like sheep have gone astray. There ain't a single one of us that can say that we are not sinners in the same way. Uh, You might say to yourself, well, I've never done what these men uh, did, and that may be true, but you've seen sin in the lives of others. You've seen how it's destroyed people. You know about Calvary. Every person in this room knows about what the ugliness of sin looked like when it was poured out upon our Savior, and you would think that would be enough to break us of it. But the fact is, we are sinners by participation. That's what we are. So they were sinners by participation. No surprise. Romans 3, chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 10 says, There's none righteous. No, not one. Now, that's me and that's you. And that's your, that's your grandkids and that's your mama and your papa and your spouse and that's your, that's your uh, favorite singer on television or your favorite TV preacher. All of us, we are all unrighteous. There's not one of us without sin. He says it pretty clearly in verse 23, all of sin. Now, maybe you would say that none doesn't, doesn't include me, but the all surely does. All, brother Ken, have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So it's not just that we are the, the product of, of our uh, sin sick condition. We certainly are a product of that, but we have chosen. We are complicit. The lost person can't shake his fist at God and say, I am only this way because you made me this way. Uh, it is true that he is that way, not because God made him that way, but because Adam made him that way or changed him to be that. And it is true that sin has caused him uh, to to be that way, but that does not mean he is not complicit in his sin. It doesn't mean he's not involved himself with his sin. If we were to be honest, every one of us, uh, we may be sinners by nature, but we are also sinners by choice. They were sinners by participation. Then I think about this, you know, they were sinners by determination. Now somebody could look at it, I think, and probably say something like this. Well, here they are, they're sinners, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all sinners. And because they are sinners, because they are broken individuals, they sin and they commit iniquity and they do wrong things. And why should we judge so harshly them for that? For that's true of every one of us. And you know, that is true. We are all that way. But there is another level to which they took their iniquity. They were sinners by determination. So what do you mean, preacher? By choice, by rejection. I look at this passage and I think to myself, it must have taken an expression of their will, of a magnitude, to be willing to, to murmur against Moses and Aaron on this day after what they had seen. They were not rejecting Moses and Aaron, and God makes that plain to Moses and Aaron at other times. They were rejecting the God that had redeemed them. And I thought about the things they had rejected. And it reminds me of how a lost sinner is. A lost sinner rejects certain things about God. Number one, I noticed they had rejected God's mercy. Think about this. Listen to what it says earlier in this chapter. Numbers chapter 16, verse 20. It says, The Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get you up from about the tabernacle of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. Now here's what God was going to do. He was going to destroy all of them, and He would have been right to do it. He would have been just in doing it. It would not have sullied His righteousness or holiness one iota. But because Moses and Aaron made intercession... 
God showed mercy upon... This is all happening prior to where we picked up our text today. This is prior to their murmuring and complaining. And you would have thought they would have considered themselves. It could have just as easily been us that was destroyed. It should have been us. You would have thought they would have said to themselves, why them and not us? Maybe you would have thought that they would have considered to themselves, you know, maybe we should turn to God being that He has been merciful to us. Every lost sinner walking around in this world is the recipient of God's mercy. Whether they've accepted Christ or not, they are still the recipient of God's mercy. They're not the recipient of God's grace yet, but they are the recipient of God's mercy. Because the fact is, why are they walking around and other people aren't? God's been merciful to them. You understand how many people die in a tragic and untimely way, and a lot of them before they ever turn their hearts to Christ? Why did God so mercifully allow us to live and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? We can only attribute that to His mercy. It is not something we deserved. Something in His mercy. But they had rejected God's mercy. Number two, I noticed they rejected God's message. And you say, preacher, I don't remember God delivering a message. Sure He did. The earth opened up and swallowed some folks. If that ain't a message, I don't know what a message is. (laughs) Fire fell from heaven and consumed 250 men. I'd say God was trying to get a point across. Now, what was God trying to say? Well, I think probably it was a message of His righteousness that He is a righteous God that will not tolerate sin or disobedience. But somehow they missed that message. I think it was a message of His requirements that they could only approach to Him through His designated mediator. In other words, Kor and Dathan and Byram said, we don't need Aaron to be our priest, we'll be our priest. God made it abundantly clear that you don't come to God on your own terms, but on His terms. And in fact, that there was only one person in the land of Israel that day through which they could approach unto God. Sort of reminds me of what Christ said in John chapter number 14 when He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. But they had rejected that and said, we'll make our own way to God. And then I think they had rejected God's message of His wrath that He is not to be tempted or trifled with. They had pushed all of this away, all of the revelation of who God is. They had pushed away, and then I noticed they had rejected God's man. Now, let me say very clearly, because some preachers mean this when they say this. When I'm talking about God's man, I ain't talking about me. And I ain't talking about any preacher you know. I'm talking about the man Christ Jesus. That's the line I'm trying to draw here this morning. I'm I'm not even preaching about church administration. I'm preaching about Calvary this morning. But they had pushed away the only hope that they had. Aaron was the only one that could get them into the right presence of God. And they said, we don't want Moses or Aaron to be rulers over us. That reminds me of how the sinner is, that they had rejected God's mercy and message and God's man. And then I noticed another thing. They were sinners by condemnation. So, preacher, how do you know they were sinners? Because God was going to destroy them. And God's holy and righteous and just, and He's never made a mistake. The fact that He was going to destroy them, Brother Ken, is an indication that they were deserving of that destruction. Now, unless we're ready to charge God with making a mistake... And I don't think we are. I think everybody in this room, we're Bible believers. Most of us, I don't know anyone's heart's condition, but I think most of us would say, I believe the Bible and I believe that the God of the Bible is right. Then we'd have to admit, if God says a man is a sinner, he's a sinner. If God says a man is condemned, then he is condemned. Now, what has God said? Do you know this verse? You've quoted it and you can quote it with me. That famous, probably the most famous verse in the Word of God, for God so loved the world, 
that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But have you ever read John 3.17? Have you ever read John 3.18? It gets a little deeper. It says, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Now, most people would love to stop right there, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He says in verse 18, He that believeth on Him is not condemned. Thank the Lord. Amen? But he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So in other words, God looks at every unbeliever in the world and says, you are condemned already. They are sinners by condemnation. Now they might say, well, preacher, I've never done anything particularly wrong. God never said you did. God never said you were immoral. God never said you don't pay your taxes or rewind videos before you return them. We've got about two more years we can make that joke. And then it'll be done. I'll say that to people and they'll just look at me. They won't even know what I'm talking about. God never said you were a morally bad person. Now, you are, and I am. But that wasn't really God's charge against you. God said you're dead and you need life. God said you're condemned and you need to be pardoned. God said you're unrighteous and you need to be forgiven. You see, if you've not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're condemned already. You're not waiting to find out. If you are, it's in ignorance because God has already said what condition you're in. You are a sinner by condemnation. So I see the transgressors here. But then, thank the Lord, there was a man that was willing. And really, we, we must say there's two men. Because Moses has his part. Aaron has his part. Moses turns to Aaron and commands him to go and to gather incense and to stand in between the plague and the people. And when I look at Aaron, it's a reminder to me of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Aaron is a type of Christ in the Old Testament on many occasions. But here it is so vivid because it reminds me of three things about the Lord Jesus and what He did for us. Number one, look with me back. Let's see, verse number 44, or 45, excuse me. In verse number 45, God says this to Moses and Aaron. says, Get you up from among this congregation that I may consume them as in a moment. And He said, look at the next phrase. It says, And they fell upon their faces. Now, I wonder what they were doing. You might disagree with this. Somebody could say, well, preacher, they fell on their faces. They were in the presence of God. Well, they were already in the presence of God. So what was it that made them fall upon their faces? It seems to me, plainly, that it's that God declared He was going to destroy the children of Israel. And when God said that, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. Now, if a man falls on his face, and it's not necessarily out of reverence, what is he probably doing? I'd say this, he's probably praying. He's probably praying. He's probably humbling himself before God and asking God to spare the children of Israel. Now stop and think about that. Here's the high priest, the only man that can stand and talk to God in the nation other than Moses. And he's willing to fall on his face to try to save sinners from the consequences of their sins. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Jesus' merciful condescension. That whenever mankind was lost and undone and broken and sinful and unrighteous, and he could have just entrenched himself and fortified himself in the ivory palaces of glory, he could have resigned all of mankind to die the just deserts of their unrighteousness and iniquity. He could have turned a blind divine eye to man's suffering. Instead, when he saw man in his condemned state, he fell to his face. But he fell a little further than that. He descended to this earth and robed himself in flesh. Boy, that's a greater act of humility than anything Aaron ever did. I can't help but think about Philippians chapter 2. You could probably quote it. Verse 5, Paul says this, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God... That's higher than Aaron was. Aaron, Aaron, Aaron was the faithful servant of God. Jesus was in the form of God. He was God. 
That's what it says. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Aaron was not equal with God. He was much lower than God. Jesus was equal with God. Listen to what it says. But he made himself of no reputation. Isn't it interesting? That whole business about Moses and Aaron, it was about vindicating the priesthood of Aaron. Now, I don't think Aaron was prideful in what he was doing, but God was trying to make a reputation for Aaron. He was trying to make it known to the people that Aaron was his servant. So when Aaron fell down, it was that a reputation might be made. But Jesus made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. No man can ever lift you higher than Jesus can. And the reason is because no man has ever gone lower for us than Jesus has. He didn't have to do that. But he came to where we were because we couldn't get to where he was. I've thought about this often. I've preached out of the book of Psalms, talking about Him uh, lifting me out of the miry clay and setting my feet upon a solid rock and establishing my goings. I've preached on that a lot, talking about Christ and Calvary. And somebody made the comment to me one day, and I, I agree with this, and I wouldn't fuss at a man over this. If you're preaching Jesus and preaching Him right, I ain't going to fuss at you, amen? But, but somebody made the comment and said, He did more than that for me. He didn't just lift me out. He got down in the pit with me. <laughs> he bowed down and let me put my filthy, grimy, wicked, ungodly foot upon His back and use Him to step up out of that miry clay and get my feet on a solid rock. Nobody's ever done for you and me what Jesus has done. So I think about His merciful condescension. And then I think about His ministry of intercession. Now, it's interesting. I don't know how you would have done it, but I know how I probably would have. If I'd been Moses, I wouldn't have said reach for the censer. I would have said, reach for one of those holy knives. If I had been Moses, I wouldn't have said, reach for the incense. I would have said, reach for the lamb or reach for the bullock. But instead, Moses tells Aaron, and there could be a myriad of practical and and and, and significant reasons for this, but there's one that sticks out to me. Aaron looks at Moses and says, go get the, the censer. Put fire from the altar and put incense thereon. Now, incense in the book of Revelations, it's revealed to us that incense typifies the, saint, the prayers of the saints. And it has to do with the idea of the high priest ministering, carrying our prayers into the presence of God. So it's interesting that a sacrifice so deeply involved with the priesthood would be the thing that Moses would call for. Whenever a sacrifice was, was given, a lamb was offered or a bullock was offered, the priest was involved with it, but he wasn't even as involved, as involved with it as the offerer was. Whenever they would come, the offerer would put his hand on the head and pronounce all of his sins, and the offerer would take the knife and, and, and kill the, the bullock or the lamb or whatever it might have been. All the priest did was butcher it and burn it after that. But the incense offering was something that only and wholly the priest would offer. See, here's what I think God's trying to convey to us, that the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was a ministry of intercession of Him going in between us and God and getting us to God in a complete and wholly independent way. In other words, it isn't my participation in this salvation thing that gets me saved. Whatever I do in the sense of praying to God, coming to God, letting my will be broken is secondary. It's Jesus that does the saving. Him and Him alone. He has a ministry of intercession. I thought about Isaiah chapter 53, that great Old Testament messianic chapter. It says in verse number 12 at the end of it, it says about Jesus, He hath poured out His soul unto death and He was numbered with the transgressors and He bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter number 5. 
about this very thing. Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He made the sacrifice for you and for me. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you remember what it said back in number 16, verse number 46? It said, make an atonement for them. Listen to what it says in Romans 5.11. Not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. In other words, in some way, in some sense, what Aaron did on that day in taking the censer and taking the fire and taking the incense and making a way reminds me of what Christ did on Calvary. But then I notice a third thing that reminds me of Jesus. And I, and I think this is really the point. Somebody will say, get to the point, preacher. Here's the point. You ready? Here it comes. I think about his merciful condescension that he they, they fell upon their faces. That reminds me of Jesus who fell a lot farther than just upon his face. I think of his ministry of intercession, that it was his and wholly his and only his responsibility to make a sacrifice and to make an atonement. And I think about what Jesus did on Calvary. Listen, God doesn't need yours and my good works for us to be righteous. He just doesn't need them doesn't mean He doesn't want us to do right and live right and be right. He didn't save us to be sinful. He saved us to be sanctified. But He does not need our good works to make us right with God. You say, why? Because He has Jesus' good works. He has His blood and His sacrifice. It's not your blood, sweat, and tears, but it's His blood, sweat, and tears that He offered in three and a half years of ministry and there in the Garden of Gethsemane. So his ministry of intercession reminds me of Jesus. But then there's another thing, and I and this is really the point. His middle position reminds me of Jesus. The Bible says that he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Now, what can we receive? What can we what can we learn from that? I think there's a number of things. I would say this that it reminds us that he is the differentiating factor, and I'll say more about this between before we close. But until you've met him, you're still living in the land of the dead. Then I would also say this that what he did on Calvary, he stood between the living and the dead. It's amazing to think of him. There he was on the middle cross between a man that died in his sins and a man that went on to living glory. There he stood between an earth that was convulsing and dying under the weight of her sin and the heaven of God that is glorious and above and where all life is. There he stood as the only man that has ever of his own power gone into the realm of death, conquered death, and come back from the land of the dead to the land of the living and Stands with one hand towards those that are dead and one hand towards those that are alive and can bridge the gap for you and I. There's so much that reminds me of Jesus here. And I think of 1 Timothy chapter 2 when it's said so vividly, for there is one God and one mediator. Now what's a mediator? A mediator is a man that stands in between two parties at opposition. That's what a mediator does. If, if you and somebody can't get along, you call someone in and they mediate for you. They stand in the middle and they bridge the gap. That's who Jesus is. No man cometh unto the Father but by Him. He's the only way because He is the mediator. I love the, I love the word that Job uses. Job calls Him a daysman. Says, oh, that there were a daysman betwixt me and God. And the word daysman means a legal adjudicator. It means a legal advocate. It means a man that stands between the guilty party and the judging party. And that's exactly what 
what Jesus does for you and I. He's the mediator, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself, here's why, because he gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He went into the land of the dead and came back into the land of the living. He stands with one hand in both worlds, reaching a hand of mercy down to those of us that are in the land of the dead and a hand of ministry up to the God of glory and allows us to have a relationship with the God of creation. He stands. His middle position reminds me of the Lord Jesus. And interesting, even even His very nature and character, He was both 100% God and 100% man. He, He could look at a man and say, I know what you're feeling and be telling the truth. And he could lift his head towards heaven and say that he knew the Father's thoughts and that was always true. He is the man in the midst. He is the man in the middle at all times. So it reminds me of Jesus. And then finally, and I'm just going to mention this in closing. I'm not even really going to preach it. But I want to say a word about the remainder. We've talked about the transgressor. We've talked about the intercessor. I want to talk about the remainder. What does the remainder of the passage say and what can it teach us? It says in verse 49, Now they that died in the plague were 14,700 beside them that died about the matter of Korah. So we can imagine, we don't know how large Korah's family was, but let's imagine they were 50 people between Korah and Dathan and Byram and, and their children and, and their wives. And we can imagine there was 14,700 and then another 250 plus the 50 that were of Korah and Dathan and Byram. We can easily imagine that 15,000 people died on this day. Can I tell you, it's a sad truth, but I see the dead in this passage. I see there are some that turn away the man in the middle. I see there are some that turn away the hand of mercy and grace extended to them. I see there are some that choose to reject his his sacrifice and his offering. And what happens to those people? The plague overtakes them. Can I tell you something? You're not waiting for the plague to start. The plague has already begun. I'm talking about the sin plague. Don't get all nervous with me. Y'all been watching the news too much. I'm talking about the sin plague. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about mankind's sin sickness. We're not waiting for it to happen. The condemnation is not coming. Death is not coming. It's already here. Men are dead already. They are condemned already. The plague has already moved through society. I see the dead here. And what will happen if those are not reached with the sacrifice? They'll stay dead. They'll stay dead. And every single day of our life, there are people dropping off of the edge of life into death, off of the edge of time into eternity, and losing their lives and losing their opportunities and losing that season of grace whereby they can turn to that man with the sacrifice. I see the dead here, but then I see the delivered here. Verse 50 says this, Aaron returned unto Moses under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the plague was stayed. Now what does it mean when it says the plague was stayed? Well, it means it was stopped. That tells me there were some that were on one side of that man that died because they were not, they had not received the atonement. But there were some on the other side of that man that by the grace of God survived. Can I say a word about the difference? The difference is that man in the middle. On that day in Israel, that's all that mattered. Didn't matter how much money was in your, in your wallet. Didn't matter what your heritage, what your lineage was. It didn't matter how many good works you had done or how many bad works you had done. There was one thing and one thing that mattered in the land of Israel that day. Which side were you on concerning the man in the middle? You know, that's true today. All the other things, however they impact our lives, are really paltry compared to that one great question. What have you done with Jesus Christ? Where do you stand concerning that man in the middle? Can I ask you one more question? And this isn't even in my notes, but I want to ask it. What about you and I? Now, we know that our high priest 
is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. He's not on the cross of Calvary, despite what the Roman Catholics may project. He's not on the cross anymore. He's come off the cross. Somebody say amen to that. He's not on the cross. He's come off the cross. He's not on a piece of jewelry. He's not on a piece of wood in the land of Israel. He's seated at the right hand of His heavenly Father. So you and I live in this world, and He is at the right hand of the Father where there is no plague. So whose job is it to stand between the living and the dead? Have you ever wondered to yourself, could it be that there's people that because I was unwilling to take the the censor of the Word of God, I was unwilling to take the fire of God's expiated judgment, the fact that Christ has paid the price for us. I was unwilling to take the incense of the glorious gospel message, and I was unwilling to go out into a world that is dying by the moment and stand in between. Can I say I'm thankful for the day somebody stood in between me and death? I'm thankful for the day somebody prayed for me. I'm thankful for the day somebody took the gospel and shared it with me. I would not stand here today. I'd be part of that 15,000. I'd be part of them that are broken and living a dead man's life, walking through this world in bondage to sin. But thank God there was somebody that stood between the living and the dead. Saw a 10-year-old boy that needed to be saved and shared the glorious truth with me. Are you and I standing between the living and the dead? I would say this, whether we like to acknowledge it or not, we are. All around us we are. So the question is, are we making the difference in their lives? Just like Christ did for you and I, and just like somebody that loved you enough to pray for you and to witness to you did for you and I, let us stand between the living and the dead. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar is already open, and you know you don't have to wait for a note to be played. You can come and respond in obedience to the Lord right now. Let's have a word of prayer as the musician comes. Father, I pray that you'd bless this invitation. And I pray that Christ would be magnified. And I pray that we'd be dealt with. Lord, that we would be, that we would be wrestled with by your spirit. That you would show us the areas of our life that need to be submitted unto you and need to be corrected. That you'd help us to be obedient unto you as you work in our lives. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Jesus' name.